Welcome to Behind the White Coat Podcast. I am your host, Eric Malara, a first-year medical student. In this podcast, we listen to the stories of those underrepresented in medicine or those with an exceptionally non-traditional background. I would like to thank David DeRoche for his guidance and the Quinnipiac University podcast for their support. Today's guest is Brooklyn native Dr. Gesar Ortega, born to immigrant parents from the Dominican Republic. Dr. Ortega went to Syracuse University for his bachelor's degree and went on to receive his MD at Howard School of Medicine, where he also trained in general surgery and health disparities research. Dr. Ortega also received a master's of public health at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is currently the lead faculty for research and innovation for equitable surgical care at the Center for Surgery and Public Health, Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. Dr. Ortega is a co-founder of the Latino Surgical Society, which aims to cultivate, nurture, and support the advancement of Latino surgeons. I'd like to begin with about the COVID-19 article that you help write. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on why it's so important to have diversity in specifically in the medical field. Well, thanks, Eric. Um, and that's an excellent question. And there's a lot um, mm-hmm. to unfold there. I think that um, diversity in the medical field is extremely important because you have to, one, it's important to have a workforce that reflects the population that they care for. Um, and that's part of where the term underrepresented comes from, right, is the fact that we're not represented equally within the population, our workforce. But I think that the, the, the question of diversity in our, um, in medicine, it stems from multiple things. I think the first comes from making sure that we have a workforce that reflects what we look like, um, and what our population looks like. It is also important for us to have Um, physicians of color within leadership so that we can continue to develop the pipeline and also nurture um, our students of color who are coming in. One of the things that is really important is also having someone to serve as a role model or just mentors that have some level of concordance that has been demonstrated to help a lot and to um, not only help, but also motivate students of color within their career, the career trajectory and training, but also most importantly, our physicians that come from these diverse backgrounds have a diverse perspective that needs to be brought to the table and needs to be reflected in the work that we do. We don't want to miss out on opportunities because we don't have, or someone didn't consider something that they may have not thought about. Speaking with other classmates, they feel like coming from an underrepresented group gives them an extra layer of imposter syndrome. So like a lot of medical students come in, they already have an imposter syndrome wherever you come from. What are your thoughts on that though? Like, is it important that we kind of call it like underrepresented groups or what, what are like the, the benefits and the, and the cons to that? Well, I think that it's important to acknowledge that we are underrepresented in, this, uh, in medicine. 
right? And so that's probably one of the more commonly used terms now is underrepresented in medicine or UIMs. And I think the acknowledgement is important. I also think that with regards to imposter syndrome, it gets multiplied and it can get multiplied when you're in uh, medical school. The reason I say that is as someone who is of Latino background, first generation, coming from a poor, low socioeconomic neighborhood, you get to medical school and you realize that most, if about 80%, if not more, of medical students in the country come from a household that lies within the first two or the first top income quintiles or quartiles. And so there's also when not only does there exist like a racial ethnic gap, but then there's also a socioeconomic gap that I needed to kind of transcend as well. And it's it's reflected in a lot of like my close friends I have who are underrepresented in medicine, but have parents who are doctors or come from higher income, if not like middle income backgrounds. And so it's it's multiple layers, um, not just like racial, ethnic minorities, but also socioeconomic. And then, you know, you could even add in like gender identity and other different identities in which someone can like continue to feel different. But I think it's important for students to recognize that you got accepted into medical school. You're there. Uh, because you worked hard and you deserve to be there. And it's hard to feel that way when there are not that many people that look like you um, in that setting, but you have to kind of push through it and, and excel. But for the same reason, because there are not so many, I mean, I've had mentors who would constantly tell me, you need to be twice as great to be half as good. Mm. Right? And so this kind of, this culture of excellence is perpetuated because you know that everyone has expectations of you that may not be what you want or that or may or maybe more of the ones that society has put upon us versus what we believe we can achieve and you mentioned that you've had to overcome as well not only just the racial and ethnic identity but also the socioeconomic hurdles that you have had to come through so can you talk to me a little bit about like growing up i know you're from brooklyn but what was it like growing up for you and kind of the struggles that you had as a kid in, in high school yeah, no, growing up in Brooklyn was rough. I mean, it was, I grew up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Uh, my parents had just emigrated to the United States from the Dominican Republic about a year before I was born. And um, all of us were learning English at the same time. Um, and so navigating the country, the educational system, the healthcare system. Uh, and then I had, w- without knowing the language and like, you know, figuring out what resources are available and already being in a low resource setting made it a little bit more challenging. I was fortunate enough to have excelled in school to get into specialized programs and schools that allowed me to then kind of leapfrog into better academic settings that then set me up for success. But it is not the path for many of my friends growing up and where they currently ended up and like what has happened and the things that I've seen growing up. And so it's been, it's, it is very, um, it's very humbling, but it's also reminds me of why I do some of the work that I, you know, that I do and why I focus so much on health equity, because growing up, that was a reality for me. And it still is as 
a practitioner today. And can we expand on, you said like that wasn't the route for many of your friends. What was their kind of goals? Did you have, did you share the same goals in terms of, let's say, education? Um, it was, so it was more in, in junior high school and in elementary school. It wasn't something that was commonly discussed. There was just not a lot of us that were even thinking about college. And, and so it wasn't a conversation that was had at that level. It wasn't until I got to high school and fortunately I went to um, a magnet school or specialized high school in which college was, you know, the minimum expectation. And learning about schools and universities, I mean, I didn't know what an Ivy League school was until I got to college. Mm -hmm. So I was a sophomore in college. (laughs) Um, And then looking back at knowing the grades that I got in high school and my SAT scores, I could have easily gotten into an Ivy League school, but I didn't even think to apply because I didn't know that existed. I didn't know that there was a difference in like, oh, going to these top tier schools or these, you know, I just, and I was happy where I ended up and and I was fortunate to get scholarships, but I looked at getting scholarships and I was like, oh, I'm super lucky, not knowing that I was really super competitive for those scholarships. But again, without the guidance and uh, the mentorship and just knowing exactly you know, what the opportunities were, you're limited as to how far you can kind of go when you, you don't know what opportunities exist for you out there. So for you, do you think it was more of an internal thing of just being competitive? And you said you didn't know like what Ivy Leagues were and you just kind of, you know, you worked hard and you got into college and you didn't find out like what Ivy League was until your sophomore year. I know you said you had great guidance, but where does like that strive for doing well in education come for you? Um, so the honest, honestly, it came from sports. <laughs> So uh, sports drove me to excel in school because it was the only way that I could play what I do, what I wanted to do athletically. And so uh, I, I got good grades for most of my like junior high school, elementary school. Right. And then when I got to high school, I started playing football um, and um, organized football and on the varsity team. And so like wanting to play more and do that, um, there were minimums that we needed to maintain in order to stay on the team. But also it became because I went to a school that was my like my colleagues and my peers were relatively competitive. We, we, there was always this like internal friendly competition to excel and to do well. Um, and so that kind of kept me there. But also my coaches were some, you know, my parents, but always instill in us like a strong work ethic and more importantly, like. You know, I remember as a kid, like, don't do it if you're not going to, you know, put 100% effort. You might as well not do it. And so having that work ethic along with wanting to excel in school so that I could continue to play sports were some of the things that drove me um, early on in my career. Um, so I'll just add one more thing about the the high school and just growing up. So I have, um, I grew up with, uh, in a house of four siblings with it's four of us all together and we're all pretty close in age. And so there was never rarely a quiet moment in the house. (laughs) So I say that because to this day, I'm still an early bird because growing up, I would wake up at like 4.30, 5 a.m. just to study because it was the only time that it was quiet enough to actually read or like just do work in silence. 
because it was hard. I mean, to like do work in the evenings, the TV's on, my siblings are running around, everyone's like doing stuff. There's no, you know, it's just really hard to sit and concentrate. And so I would just get up early and do it. And to this day, like I still am an early bird. Like I still have a habit of waking up very early and getting things done. And and then eventually some of my siblings will wake up with me and do work or it just became something that would happen where we would just wake up and get things done before our day started because it was quiet and no one would distract you um, because none of your friends were up yet and no <laughs> to say, hey, to come over and want to play and do other things. When does medicine come in? Was that like, what was your idea of just like a doctor or medicine at a young age for you? Medicine really started becoming an option for me in college. I was in high school. I was really, I was interested in computer science. Um, That was, and even when I applied to college, I applied mainly for computer engineering, bioengineering majors, biology majors, but those were, I was really interested in career in engineering and either a computer scientist or a bioengineer because I like biology. And when I got to Syracuse University, I immediately switched my major from biology to biochemistry because I didn't want to study botany and zoology. I was like, I want to study the human, like just human beings and not other uh, life forms. So I switched to biochemistry, which was great. And then I just did um, information management and some computer science classes as minors. And But it was my expo- exposure during the summers in between my undergraduate years where I did summer research programs at NYU and at Cornell that really gave me like my first real exposure to medicine, to academic medicine, to research, clinical research. And it kind of inspired me to pursue that as a career. I knew that um, it, it was almost like kind of I figured it out by thinking about the things that I didn't want to do. And I got to the point where I was like, well, medicine is pretty cool. It will continually challenge me. I can teach, I can do research, I can do, I can help people, I can serve my community, I could also make money. Um, And so all those things made the field attractive. And so it was just a matter of like, okay, well, how do I get it? Like, how do I become a doctor? What do I need to do to get there? And those summer programs are critical in helping prepare me for that and teaching me like what steps were and what I needed to do to get into medical school. When you were young, like what was your idea of a doctor? And the reason why I asked that is because I have a classmate, so she's African of African American female who's from Brooklyn as well. And she was telling me that she remembers that she didn't even see her first African American female doctor until she was like 14. Her understanding and her friends and her community of medicine just wasn't there. So what was it like for you, like your understanding of healthcare in general? It was, so coming from the community that I came, uh, I came from, I mean, it wasn't pervasive, right? You didn't have doctors everywhere. It's not like I knew a doctor growing up. And I mean, the only doctor that I had exposure to was my pediatrician. And I don't even remember what my pediatrician looked like. I, I think that most students of color, especially if you come from a low-income background or you just never had any illness, serious illness. I mean, the only doctor you really have exposure to is a pediatrician. And it's no wonder why when most students of color get to medical school or they start applying for or thinking about medicine, a vast majority want to do pediatrics. 
because it's really the only field you have exposure to. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you were, you know, one of the students who broke a leg or, and then met an orthopedic surgeon or had some other like medical condition that forced um, an interaction with a doctor. Most people don't have those stories. And so I, um, my experience with medicine was really primary care until I got to medical school. You know, it wasn't, I, I didn't really understand the different types of surgeons, the specialties, the complexity of medicine, the fact that you have physiatrists and radiologists and, you know, radiation oncologists and all these different specialties. All that was new to me and something that I learned about in, med- in medical school. Right. And that's, that's something that I spoke with about with Dr. Arenas is these pipeline programs, right, to get students of color into medical school. But then, you know, the next phase, it seems like to actually have them succeed and go into these specialties. This is just something that I've noticed, too, that you've, you've said is a lot of students of color want to go into family medicine or pediatrics because they feel like they have to give back to the community. Right. So. And a lot of them have the sentiment of like selling out. Like if I go into like surgery or all these specialties, like I won't be serving my community. So what was the process for you to go into surgery? Like you said, you like all your only exposure was pediatrics and now you're going into surgery. So what was that process like for you? Yeah, no, it's interesting because I never really looked at it as selling out um, going into surgery. I think that, when I got to medical school, my parents are not doctors and it doesn't matter what type of doctor I would have become, they would have been proud of me regardless. And I remember having the conversation with my parents and my dad and saying, hey, um, I'm thinking about doing surgery and this is you know, the specific field of surgery that I'm interested in. And he was like, oh, they're different surgeons. I was like, yeah, well, we have this type of surgeon for this, this, that. He was like, oh, okay. Because under his impression, he was like, oh, a surgeon was a surgeon. There was only one type. Right. Which I think that a lot of people probably assume, right? If you're not Definitely. familiar with the healthcare system and what, what has occurred. But I think part of it is when you get to medical school, the first two years or first year and a half, depending on what school you go to, are really spent on basic sciences and learning the foundations of like medicine and theoretical medicine. And then you do your clinical years um, or your clinical year. And when you get into your clinical year, that's when you get that exposure to surgery, OBGYN, family practice, internal medicine, and other specialties. And when you do those, that's when you really kind of get a feel for what those specialties are and what medicine, a little bit more about what medicine has to offer. But what you start to realize is that if you decide then that you want to do something, it's a little late for the competitive specialties. And so because you have to apply for residency at the end of third year. And so when you're when you decide that, okay, I've done my surgery rotation as my last third year rotation and I love this and this is great, but you now need to apply for residency in a few months, in less than a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't give you much time to put together a very competitive application for residency for something that's already competitive. And so, and so for me, the sellout is more saying, okay, well, I don't want to pursue this anymore because I don't think I'm competitive. 
and I'll just do something that's not as competitive. But it's to, so I don't, I don't know, and I don't see either as a sellout. I just think you do what you love to do, and you just keep moving forward. But it is a challenge when you learn late, like what you want to do. And I think that that happens to a lot of students of color because we just don't have the exposure early enough, right? Like if I had exposure to some of the subspecialties prior to medical school or very early on, then it may be easier to make that decision and then prepare your application throughout those years. So now when the end of third year comes and you're ready to apply for residency, you have a competitive application for a neurosurgery or urology or orthopedic surgery or something or, you know, any other specialty that you may want to do that's competitive. You said that you probably would have felt more of a sellout if you didn't try for surgery as opposed to picking something else. I mean, a personal sellout, right? Because I think you do what you love to do, right? Like I think that you, you, you find what you are, you know, what you're passionate about. Every field is going to have its pros and cons. None of them are perfect, but um, but you find the one that's a best fit for you and you commit to it and you, you go all in. What are your thoughts on getting more students of color into competitive specialties? I, I think that exposure early on is important. And there have been some pipeline programs, and Dimensions being one of them, that has provided that exposure to medical students early on in order to diversify the competitive specialties. Um, and so the first, yes, the first challenge is getting more students of color into medical school. But once you get them into medical school, exposing them to all the different specialties and providing adequate exposure so that students can make an early decision, uh, early, a decision early on as to what they want to, or if they want to pursue that competitive specialty. But I think the, the first step is exposure talking about exposure, can we talk about the Latino Surgical Society, which you are a co-founder of? Can you tell me a little bit about what that is and why you started it? Yeah. Um, So the Latino Surgical Society, we started it um, because of a conversation that um, a couple of the co-founders and I were having. We were in our training and we were discussing one night. We happened, there happened to be a night where a few of us happened to be on call and, and we all come from different institutions, but we were realizing that the number of Latino surgeons across the country for some of these specialties, when we sat there and we tried to like go through all the trainees that we knew and some of the faculty that we knew, we could count in some specialties, all of the people in that field within our two hands. And we were like, wow, like that's, that's really, you know, it's sad, but it's also like, wow, that's a problem. Like Mm -hmm. there, we need to do more to increase Latino surgeons. And most of us were also part of the leadership of the Latino Medical Student Association as medical students. And so we already had like a natural sense of like, okay, well, we want to lead in surgery. We want to make sure that we provide Um, services for Latino surgeons because we need to do a better job of recruiting more Latinos to surgery, but also making sure that we retain them once they are in surgery. And so with that, we thought, well, are there any Latino surgical societies out there? Mm. 
And you realize that they're none. And, um, and so we said, okay, well, we need to start, we need to create something. Um, and it took about two years, maybe a little bit more to even start it. And one of the things that I always find fascinating is that even when we were creating our social media accounts, the term Latino surgery had not been taken at all. So, you know, in an era now where there's so many like everything's taken and everything is taken, right? Like you try to create a social media account with something, you know, for the most part, it's always taken, but nope, Latino surgery was not taken at all. So it was a wow moment for us. Like, wow, like, wow, <laughs> this was, uh, and so we, we formed the organization in 2017 and um, since then have been working to increase the membership increase awareness of the organization and build its infrastructure. It's going to take time. And I think that it's going to continue to grow, but already it's been fun. It's been impressive. The uh, impact that I feel like we've had so far. And also it's allowed us to um, link so many different Latino surgeons and continue to learn about what other people are doing out there. And also to know that people exist. Like a lot of people were just happy to know that, oh, wow, that organization exists. I would love to be a part of it because prior to that, they had not known of anything like this. Why do you think it is so important to have, and we'll just keep it to Latino specifically because it's the Latino Surgical Society. But why do you think it's important to have more Latinos in surgery? I think it's important to have Latinos in surgery for multiple reasons. One, surgeons, um, especially trauma surgeons, critical care surgeons are frontline workers within surgery, right? I think that trauma surgeons are taking care of patients with penetrating blunt trauma. And unfortunately, those injuries occur at a disproportionate rate in our communities of color. And so having surgeons that are from those communities um, and can relate to those patients is extremely important to, and can hopefully can improve care. But I think that that helps. I don't think it's necessary. Even within other specialties, uh, the fact that you have a surgeon that speaks your language, if you, a provider that can speak Spanish is, makes a big difference for um, Latino communities, but also tailoring our message to those communities are important from like surgical oncologists. And we, when we talk about anything from breast cancer to colon cancer to lung cancer or any one of the cancers, having a surgeon that's sensitive to your culture, to your needs, and to the things that you may, that may, that are unique to the Latino community, provide an, you know, an extra level of concordance of care that is not usually available to our community. And so those, I mean, and then not only that, but then also in fostering the next generation of Latino surgeons, it's, you know, it's great to have role models and to have people that you can kind of admire, but also serve as mentors and provide guidance for the next generation. And so there are many reasons. I think those are just some for the need for Latino surgeons. And you mentioned earlier that you've also learned a great deal from starting this campaign. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Like, what have, what have you learned since you've started it? You start to learn that, well, even as a medical student, I understood that just the Latino community is extremely diverse, right? Mm-hmm. It, we're not a monolithic culture. We have 
you know, in the Northeast, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. In the South, Southeast, you have a lot of Cubans. The West, Midwest, you have a lot of Mexicans. And, and everyone's everywhere. I mean, you could find any, like, nationality of Latino within any region of the country. But you have these very, um, these groups that are, like, you know, more represented than others within the Latino community. And so even within our group, right, there's still a lot of diversity that exists. And even some of the language, I always joke, one of the things, I'm, in, I'm from Brooklyn, right? I'm from New York and I trained in DC and just remember going down to DC and using the word ahorita and <laughs> telling my patients, voy a regresar ahorita. And they would look at me like, oh, you're going to come back now? And I'm like, huh? And the reason is because for Dominicans, ahorita is later. Mm-hmm. Um, that, so I don't. So to me, I was just telling them like I'm coming back later, but it wasn't until I had, you know, one of my patients from Central America who was like, "Oh, um, no, ahorita means now." And we kind of got into this like what ahorita means, <laughs> and there was no right or wrong. Right, it was right. just, you know, in you know, in Mexico, Central America, right? Like ahorita just means now, and for me, it meant later, and so. It's the same exact word, obviously, with two different meanings, depending on where you're from or and so kind of and there are a lot of words in Spanish that are like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I had to kind of learn that even right within our own Latino community, there's still so much diversity in the culture, in the language, which I think makes it fun. It makes it a little bit. It makes it interesting. It's great to learn about um, other cultures and then bring that to our organization, that ri- the richness of all those cultures. But then I've also learned that just a lot of other, like, uh, of other people who are in other places, other surgeons who have reached out and, you know, they're like, hey, I'm the only Latino surgeon within my department or, you know, I'm the only surgical Latino surgical resident at, you know, where I'm at and kind of hearing their stories and their perspective has been motivating, but it's also an opportunity to inspire and to uplift those that feel a little bit more isolated. And, and then it's also been an opportunity to unite everyone, right? To let them know like, hey, you're not alone. There are other people at these other programs and these other locations that share your story, you know, and are there to support you. I think many people think that you can only join a group if you come from that background. For example, being part of the Latino Surgical Society, only if you're Latino. But what has been the response to maybe people who don't fit into a particular group? Well, I should say that my perspective has always been that you should lead by example. So I'm a member of the Society of Asian Academic Surgeons. I'm a member of the Society of Black Academic Surgeons. I'm a member of other societies and organizations that are that are that have a unique um, rep, like a unique focus on certain groups, and I may even though I may not identify with that group, as I still believe in the cause and I still believe in what that organization is trying to do, and so I truly just believe that as long as you support the cause of the organization, it's okay to be a member, and so when. People tell me, well, do I need to be Latino to be part of your organization? I'm like, absolutely not. I mean, we focus on Latino health and Latino issues, but anyone can be an advocate for Latino health or Latino issues. You don't need to be Latino in order to do that. 
and, and then you start to also realize that, you know, in order to grow your membership base and to like help support your organization, right? It's what all these schools and what we all try to do, right? Inclusivity, right? Like you have to be inclusive, right? That's mm-hmm. the only way we're going to get better and to work to a, a better society um, is to be inclusive. It's not to try to push people out of our organization. So to say to someone that they can't be a part of it, but more for people to recognize that there are differences within among us, right? And mm-hmm. we should celebrate those differences, but we should also embrace them and use them to come up with diverse perspectives to solving some of the problems that we have in our healthcare system and coming up with innovative solutions because you have such a diversity of individuals in your organization and diversity of thought. But I will tell you, every single pre-med student that I mentor, one of the conversations that we have at some point, especially er very early on, is I want you to join all the student organizations that exist. So I want you to join a PAMSA, AMSA, SNMA, LMSA, whatever, right? Because every organization has resources that are unique to their organization that I want you to tap into and utilize all of it, right? Like there's no reason why you could pay, you know, you pay your membership fee and you just become a, and learn about all the different opportunities that these organizations have. Like why limit yourself to just one? You can be a part of all of them. And if you decide that you like one more than the other or you want to get involved in one organization more than another, then you do so. But no reason to limit yourself to or feel like you need to just put yourself into a group or an org just because what society says that you need to be identified as. What are some tips maybe you could give us as medical students, regardless if it's first year or your fourth year, to maybe be a mentor, be a leader in this field? Yeah, I mean, I think one is identify a mentor, seek out someone that you admire, um, someone that you aspire to be or or look up to. Um, it could be locally at your institution. It could be regionally in your area or even someone who's remote now. Um, as we see with technology, distance is no longer a real barrier to uh, connecting with someone. And so... That's the first step is identify a mentor. And then as you work with your mentors, then, you know, you start to maybe work with one or two mentors to kind of get, learn from them. And as you foster that relationship, you also start to build your mentees and you start to like practice mentorship, right? And you start to think about, well, what are the great things about my mentors? Because I want to make sure that I reflect those upon my mentee and what are the areas of growth or opportunities that I can probably expand upon or do better? There's so many times where you may see something and you're like, you know what, when I become a doctor, I'm just going to do it better than that because mm-hmm. I think it could be done better. And it's the same thing with mentorship. I think that there are so many things that we learn and we need to just kind of improve upon so that the next generation has it better than we did. And so I would, I would say that, you know, a lot of it is mentorship, building that cycle of mentoring and, continuing to just strive to learn as much as you possibly can. I think it's really hard because medical school is comes so fast. It's so much material in such a short amount of time that it sometimes can become a challenge to just take a pause and think about like what you want to do and what the future looks like. And, but it's important to do that. In medical school, did you have mentors that 
you could relate to in terms of like background or how did that work for you finding mentors? So for me, med school, the first two years were just, you go to school and you get, you know, the best grades you possibly can get. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was was like, go to class, do those things. And it wasn't until my, and when I started and I had some people that I admired and people that I looked up to during my early years of med school. And most of those individuals are all, some of them were also outside of my med school because I had some friends who were now at that point in time, residents who can kind of, you know, provided me with some advice and kind of like what to do and how to navigate med school. But it really wasn't until my third year where I've met like two of my mentors who were extremely significant in like my career and like getting me to where I'm at today. And then who also introduced me to other mentors who have now all have served as my mentors. And I feel like I'm fortunate to have an amazing group of mentors who are truly invested in my success and have guided me through these next steps um, because it really makes a difference in like just how fast things were happening once I got a mentor. Like I felt like my career just accelerated. I was like moving along and I was like, okay, I'm doing well. But like once I had like great mentorship and just guidance, like it was just a lot more, I was able to be more efficient make great decisions and just have someone that can kind of, I can bounce like critical and decisions off of and get honest feedback. We are close to wrapping up here and I just want to thank you. And it was really powerful to hear you talk about mentorship and leadership. Are there any final thoughts on your behalf? I think that excellence and part of excellence is being diverse. I think Leadership is something that is not is is important. It's not easy to do. Um, it requires making some tough decisions, but also a lot of humility. And I think that I'm inspired by you and the things that you're doing um, to create this venue, this opportunity for other students to hear these stories. I think they are important um, because our students sometimes don't get to hear this enough, but there are a lot of students out there who are striving to achieve the goals that you have achieved so far that I'm, you know, have achieved so far and still a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, at the very least, I I always like, if I could do anything, my like most important goal is just at the very least to inspire. And that's what I hope this does. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Behind the White Coat. Please make sure you subscribe either on iTunes or Spotify so you can get notified when the next episode is released. Thank you for your time and I hope you enjoyed this episode.